You're listening to Doula Stories, a podcast where we use storytelling to encourage, inform, and love on doulas. Each episode, we'll hear a story about what happens in the birth room from the doula's perspective. I'm Kelia, she, they. And I'm Ajira, she, they. And we're so glad you could join us for today's story. Today, we're hearing from Divya Kumar, who's a psychotherapist based in unceded Massachusetts land in what is now known as Boston, Massachusetts. Divya, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's so good to be here. (laughs) Tell us about yourself. We'd love it if you could share your name, pronouns, where you're from and where your people are from and what you're up to these days. Okay. Well, my name is Divya Kumar. I use she, her pronouns. I live in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, which is a neighborhood of Boston. Um, I was born in Connecticut. I identify as South Asian American or Desi. I am a psychotherapist and I specialize in perinatal mental health, trauma, and anti-oppression work. And before I became a therapist, I was a postpartum doula and a lactation counselor. And I ran new parent support groups in my neighborhood for years. And I have a public health background. I worked in sexual health, repro justice, anti-violence stuff. I have two children. They are 13 and 11 now, which is just so bizarre. My older one is almost as tall as I am, you guys. Um, After my daughter was born, after my second one was born, I left the job that I was at and I somehow started to run new parents groups in my neighborhood. And I sort of fell into this transition into perinatal work. And you can kind of take the girl out of public health, but you can't really take public health out of the girl. And so it's weird sort of thing where I was always trying to create community-based programs and integrate comprehensive perinatal support into existing systems of care. And I worked at my local community health center for years and also ran new parents groups and kind of patched a whole bunch of things together and, and always like wanted more clinical work. And one day I was, you know, doing this thing that I often do of being like, why didn't I get the clinical degree when I first was out of college? I should have gotten the dual MSW MPH. And my husband was like, well, why don't you go back to school? And I was like, no, I'm going to be 40. <laughs> and he was like, so yeah. <laughs> and, um, so I went back to social work school uh, a few years ago, uh, which was mm. one of the best decisions I made. And now I get to do all of this stuff kind of mushed together, which is awesome. Mm. That is so cool. So that it's not really too cool. late, anybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Not ever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Before we get started, I have one more question for you that's more to get a sense of who you are as a caregiver, which it sounds like you are a community activist slash caregiver, which I think is fairly common in this strata of human beings. Um, What is one of your favorite self-care practices that sustains you and your work? That's such a good question. Um, And I think about self-care a lot. And I think those of us, many of us were raised with these cultural narratives that we always sort of sacrifice ourselves and that any sort of attending to our needs is selfish. So mm-hmm. I think self-care yeah. is very radical and really important. Um, and I, I love to exercise. It is something that um, is a big part of what I do nearly every day. And especially as somebody who I grew humans in my body and I have a sort of interesting and complicated relationship with my body. But one of the times that I feel really powerful and boss is when I'm working out. And um, Mm. it's definitely something that sustains me and my body is awesome and powerful. (laughs) Yes. Mm. 
someone who grew humans in my body. I'm going to self-identify that way. I mean, fuck yeah, right? Like yeah. It's what happened. Awesome. It is a thing that I did. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. It's pretty badass. It mm. is. We should celebrate that shit. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, where were you in that journey when your story starts? I So what I'm going to tell you about is around the time, uh, the fall of 2016, the sort of leading up to that presidential election and the aftermath of it. Um, and I think it's a, it's a good story to tell because here we are four years later in the aftermath of another presidential election that thankfully ended very differently. Um, it's a story of kind of how I learned how I wanted to show up as a, a perinatal support person um, mm-hmm. and what that meant in terms of reconciling my own identity and how my own identity showed up and how I wanted to be there for other people and hold space for other people. And at the time I was running new parent support groups and I think I was in the process of applying to social work school. So the things that I sort of want to set up are, there's this piece of, of where I was at the time. I think I was getting ready to, I think I had applied to school and I was waiting to hear back. Um, and also it was, I, I was sort of coming to the point in providing support for parents where I was thinking more and more about the clinical pieces. And I was coming to this idea that parenting is really, really triggering. And this mm. is something that I've said many times. I did a podcast a couple of years ago where like the subject line, like the, the teaser line was parenting was triggering AF. And mm-hmm. um, it's something that I come back to again and again and again, uh, the rawness, the newness, all of the vulnerability, this vertical learning curve, being responsible for this tiny new human, the sleeplessness, the relentlessness. It's like freaking Groundhog Day, right? Um, <laughs> and it is like, here we go. And again, um, mm-hmm. and just how that sort of relentlessness will jostle everybody's hornet's nest. And by that, I mean, like, we all have the shit that we carry, the pain that we've experienced, the trauma, stuff we struggled with. It is kind of the house that we live in. And for many of us, we sort of figured out how to be here in our bodies and our brains and our lives. And it's mostly okay. We figure out how to manage ourselves and make peace with the house that we live in. Like we all have this shit that we've been through and we're kind of like, okay, I'm a grown person. I figured out how to manage myself and we're good. And then we have the baby and everything gets really (laughs) fucking rattled. Right. Mm -hmm. And we lose a daily rhythm of sleeping and waking and eating and resting. And these basic pieces of our coping get jostled and we can't have alone time. We don't have bodily autonomy. We don't have space. And so it can be harder to cope and stuff can get jostled. Um, Mm. And I I set all this up because these are the people that we hold space for, right? This is, this is all of us as parents and it's the people that we care for. And, you know, as you guys know, being a new parent will rattle the hell out of things. And if you have, you know, you have issues with food or an eating disorder, or you grew up with food Mm -hmm. insecurity, you have attachment stuff with your own parents that's unresolved sexual trauma, racial trauma, even if you feel like you have a hard time making friends, you feel sort of different. Everything is just sort of rattled. Um, mm-hmm. And you don't have access to coping mechanisms like you're used to because your time's not your own. You can't make the same choices that you're used to making, right? Like, so uh, if you're somebody who has has had to like override your sensations of hunger, either because you were food insecure, you have issues with food, you have disordered eating, your baby eats like eight to 12 times mm. in 24 hours. So if you spent your whole life overriding sensations of hunger, and now you have to tune into your baby's hunger all the time, you're like, well, I don't know how to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I give that as an example. And then everybody shows up to a new parents group, right? 
Um, like everybody's stuff is being sort of jostled in different ways. And people come to a group and they're like, my baby isn't napping. And then we're like, okay, let's talk about the naps and the sleep. And it was around this time that I was kind of like, okay, so there's all these other things that are happening here. And, and it was starting to show up in different ways, I think. And so I'll say like, okay, so in the fall of 2016, I'd been running groups for years I love this work so much. I still can't believe that somebody paid me, paid me to sit with new parents and listen to them mm-hmm. and hold space for them and just, you know, sit in a circle and hear people's concerns and their questions in this time of rawness and newness and vulnerability and, you know, create this environment where people felt normal. They were able to connect and feel less alone. Mm-hmm. And it was, and literally, I'm like, you guys, I have the best job ever. <laughs> Sometimes these new parents would look at me and they'd be like, you're really enthusiastic. And I was like, this is so great. Um, <laughs> I love that. Also, totally relate. Right? And I, this is like a sort of a, a digression. I, I, I have a lot of issues when people are like, I don't even want to get paid. It's an honor. I'm like, no, no, no. We're good at our jobs. We're experts. We yes. went to school. We got training. Like you would not you know, the dentist isn't saying like, this is sacred work, filling your cavities. Like, no, Mm -hmm. like this is, I am also good at my job. We're good at our jobs. We're experts. Mm -hmm. Where is it written that sacred work doesn't require exchange? So no, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sacred and I still want to be paid. Thank you. It's both and, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. I love my job. (laughs) Um, And at this point, you know, I had kind of mostly kept politics out of these groups. I think there were some exceptions maybe around the time that the police who killed Eric Garner were not held accountable. Um, I remember people were talking about going to Black Lives Matter protests. I believe this was in the fall of 2014. But politics had never dominated these conversations at moms groups and new parents groups, rather, I should say. And a lot of this, I felt like it changed in the fall of 2016 when Trump was running for president. And the man was basically running. He was a sexual predator. He admitted to it. He was psyched about it. Um, that was his thing, right? Mm-hmm. He was just vile and frightening, and that's what he ran on. Um, and a lot of people were feeling activated. He was running on these platforms of xenophobia, Islamophobia, just hatred on so many levels. And I think many people who had any sort of marginalized identity were feeling very vulnerable in a different way, um, in a way that was kind of bleeding everywhere. And it wasn't, it was showing up everywhere, I think. Mm. And do you mind painting the picture for us of what one of these groups would look like for you? So you're providing postpartum support to multiple parents at the same time. Are these parents who just had a baby weeks ago? What are the demographics like? Really anything you can tell us about what you were expecting with this new cohort of parents? That's a really good question, Kelia. Um, well, there was one that I ran that was a drop-in group and it was mostly, that's sort of the one that was really well attended. I would get like, I think probably the minimum of around 12, but sometimes it'd be more like 16 people. Like 10 was kind of low. It'd be more like 16, 17 folks. So it's a good size group. And it was for any parent of any gender, uh, babies zero to six months. So sometimes you would get people who had like a little fresh loaf nugget, like three or four weeks mm-hmm. old. Um, and then you would have people with babies like, five, six months old. Um, What was really cool about the group is that sometimes you would get parents who they would be on parental leave for 
12 weeks or so. And then sometimes their spouse would be on leave after that. So one parent would come with the baby and return to work outside the home. And then the other parent would come for the next couple of months. So it was really, it was lovely. Sometimes I would get to know two parents and a family. Mm. Um, and there were a lot of people who came for a long time for, you know, two to four months. Some people came for almost the entirety of the six months that they could. Mm. So it was really a wonderful opportunity to get to know people, to get to know their babies. Like they would come like all swaddled and wrapped up. And by the end, some of them were like sitting independently and like starting to scoot around on their bottoms and, you know, smile and laugh. And it was, it was just such an honor to sit there with them. Um, And I really, I just can't, I can't say enough how lucky I was and how much I enjoyed it. I really miss that work. Mm. I'm really, really reveling in not only the joy, but the the reverence and like you're putting into words how I feel about it too. And it's mm-hmm. really always exciting to hear someone else adore this in the same way. Mm-hmm. There's so much to adore. And literally I'd be like, sometimes I didn't have to do anything because what was so great about the group lasting for that kind of age range is you get people who would come when they were like five, six weeks postpartum and they were like, what in the ever loving fuck am I doing? Or what did I do? And how did, you know, and just like in the, the fits of the like very colicky, mm-hmm. fussy, like, you know, they, they, we had all those like big bouncy balls, <laughs> maybe like sitting on the balls the entire time. And the baby's like, rah, 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 rah. and you're like, okay. And they're like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And you're like, no, 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 it's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're fine. Mm-hmm. Um, And then, you know, a couple months later, there's new people coming in with these colicky screaming babies. And by that point, you know, somebody else is like four months postpartum and they're like, oh my gosh, I totally get it. When my baby was screaming, I would sit on the ball and I would do this. And Mm -hmm. you just see how that, that sort of mutual aid happens very organically. And it's just, Mm -hmm. it's fantastic because I don't want to be there as the expert. I'm like, you guys, do you tell each other how it is? I'm just, Mm -hmm. you know. I'm here to make sure I get the ball down for you because <laughs> people have been yeah. holding their babies and trying to get the balls off the racks that were, you know, they, they're like holding a baby one. I was like, oh, I'll do get it for you. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So was there one particular group of parents you were thinking of sharing with us about? Yes. So, so at this time, I felt like there was this, there was sort of a shift in how things were feeling. And I remember I remember feeling like people were starting to talk about politics. And at one point I was like, yeah, so parenting is really triggering, isn't it? And everybody was like, oh, you've just felt this kind of sigh come out of people. And I was like, oh, people are feeling a whole bunch of ways. And um, I, the thing is, so was I, right? And I remember as the election was sort of all the the stuff building up to it was building up. I started looking around at this room and Kelia, to your point a minute ago, you were asking about the demographics. So JP has gentrified very rapidly over the years. I moved here in 2005 and it was very different. Um, And the demographics have changed. It's become a lot more fancy, lots of luxury condos. You know, it used to be very different when I first moved here for, I think for a whole bunch of reasons, the groups that I ran were mostly white. We did have some BIPOC folks. We definitely had queer folks. Miss JP is a pretty queer friendly neighborhood, but it was a predominantly white space. Like every once in a while, I would get like a good percentage of BIPOC folks. And I'd be like, oh, this is pretty cool. But it was, 
it was mostly a white space. It was one of those places where you kind of think that people are generally progressive, but you never really know. Um, and mm. I had had a few run-ins with, you know, white women's racism in Jamaica Plain, which is a whole other podcast for another time. And I will save you that rant. But I will, what I will say is I was looking around. I've often been a person who is one of the one or only one BIPOC folks in predominantly white spaces. I have a lot of racial trauma. I grew up brown in white suburban Connecticut and was basically othered and ostracized for a lot of my early life. And that sort of morphed into desire for proximity to whiteness and a lot of rejecting of my own ethnic background for the sake of safety. And that's a whole other podcast. Mm. Um, but during this time, it was like somebody turned the lights on and I was like, oh, fuck, how did I get here? How did mm. I get here? How did I let this happen that I am moving in predominantly white spaces and this is how I've lived for so many years, and suddenly my own sense of safety felt like a house of cards. Mm. Um, and all of a sudden, I no longer wanted to be here in the same way. And I felt this unrest and this uneasiness. And, you know, especially after Trump was elected, I would find myself in groups of white women. And I would almost have to bite my tongue to not be like, was it you? Did you do this? Did you mm. vote for him? Did you fuck this up? And mm-hmm. are you a, a reptile in disguise? Who are the wolves in sheep's clothing? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I'm mm-hmm. trying to hold space for people who are vulnerable <laughs> at the same time. And I'm like, God damn it, my shit's being kicked, right? Um, and so I did have this group of new moms who I adored. Um, and every once in a while in the process of running these groups, I would get these cohorts of people. Um, and I would be like, this is wonderful. Can we all be friends? And sometimes I did like, cause we all lived in the same neighborhood. I would see them at the playground and we're all like, you know, we follow each other on Instagram and whatever. Um, but there was a group of folks who were coming to this group at this time. They all, they had different identities. Nearly all of them were not straight white folks. A couple were BIPOC. One was the single mom. There were, um, a couple of folks who were queer couples and um, every week around this time, I began looking for them. Like when these women walked in the room, I would be like, okay, all right, <laughs> you're mm. here. Okay. Mm. Um, it was really powerful to, to, I knew that I needed allies. I needed support in a different way. And so it was slowly, slowly, people started talking about politics and I started bringing this in in a gentle but intentional way. And usually I would, I would start the group by being like, okay, we're going to go around in a circle. You can say your name. You can say your baby's name. You can ask a question. You can talk about what's coming up for you. You know, we can offer support and advice. You let us know. And then I started to add, you know, also, if you don't want to talk about your baby, that's fine. If you want to talk about what's going on in the world, that's okay. Mm-hmm. You don't have to talk about the naps and the bottles and the burps and whatever. We're here for that. And also, if you want to bring in the larger context of how we're living, that's fine. And I also started saying things like, if you want to talk about something and you don't want us to respond and you just want us to listen, we can do that too. Mm. And then there was, I think, a space that got opened up in a different way and people started to share in different ways. It was one of those things that was different and it was profound and a lot of these moms started talking about like, what is it like to be a child of immigrants Mm-hmm. Um, what is it like to be uh, a non-gestational parent in a queer relationship? And what is it going to be like? I have to adopt my daughter now. 
because I don't know what's going to happen when this new administration takes power. How will that jeopardize my rights as a parent? What will, what will happen to my family? Mm. And all of these vulnerabilities came in in a way that they just hadn't been present in that space before. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they had been, but they were bubbling up. They were undeniable. Like everybody, nobody could kind of keep it from bleeding into this space. Mm. That's so much to hold at once within yourself and while holding space for others. And as you felt it opening up in the group, what did you feel led to do to support them? Was it a lot of just, that sounds really hard, does anyone else want to share? Or did it kind of have its own energy? And as soon as one person opened up, the next person did, and you just got to kind of watch and be grateful for everyone being there? It was more of the latter, um, Mm -hmm. because I really think, like before the election, there was more sort of I think that a lot of women, regardless of identity, kind of got freaked out about all the sexual predator stuff. And this is where I was kind of, it was interesting for me because I was kind of like, oh, you know, he's been saying a lot of bad shit for a long time. But when it becomes this like, oh, every woman can relate to having experienced some sort of sexual trauma that I'm like, oh, so you weren't mad when he was talking about all the anti-Muslim stuff, but now you're mad. Mm. And also, everybody was kind of joining on something. So there was, there was layers of feelings that I had about that. Um, and again, the thing that I'll come back to again and again is like, if you're providing any support for people, you got to check your own stuff. And you have to reflect on what is going to come up for you in these spaces. Because while everybody else is triggered and activated, you will be too. <laughs> because that's just kind of how our brains work sometimes. Um, yeah. But once... Once people did start saying like, you know, I'm really worried about this and I'm really worried about that, there were a bunch of people who kind of joined in and were more willing to say, you know, this isn't just some abstract issue. This is how I walk through the world. This is how I parent. This is how this is this has to do with the composition of my family. Mm. I can't turn this off. This isn't just about politics. It's actually hard for me to remember um, cause a lot of it came out in drips and drabs of, of the things that people were sharing of like, oh my God, I can't believe, I can't believe that people are going to vote for him. What does this mean for me and my family? What does this mean for me as a parent? How will I, how will I raise the daughter? What does it mean to be the mother of a daughter? Mm. And it was really, these are women who felt this vulnerability, who, we're kind of coming to terms with how am I going to be a parent now? How am I going to be a small human now when I feel like the world is unsafe and different? And I feel like I need to sort of reconsider what it means to raise a small human and have this responsibility in an environment that feels toxic and turns my vulnerability up to volume 12. Hmm. It's just... It's just a very small glimpse into what so many Black and Indigenous families are thinking about as they're pregnant, or at least I've noticed for myself, every single Black family who I've supported through their pregnancy and birth, every single one has brought up some version of, I'm having a boy and I'm really scared for his safety, or I'm just afraid of what it'll be like for my Black baby growing up in the US. And sometimes it's in passing, like almost like a throwaway line of like, oh, of course, I'm going to have that stress for the rest of my life. And I feel like the last two elections have brought 
a lot of that closer to home for a lot of parents who haven't had to think that way before. Right. Like what you were saying before. Yeah. Right. And I will note that none of these families that I'm talking about were black. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is a whole conversation about the lack of, there's a real lack of integration um, in Jamaica Plain for sure. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think Boston is very divided in a lot of, Mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons that are a whole other podcast topic. Um, Mm -hmm. And the other thing to own and part of the like reflect on your shit is also reflect on what pieces of privilege you have. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a brown person. I'm a non-black person of color. I don't walk through the world. I don't walk through this country in the same way that black folks do. Um, I'm a straight woman. I have a good bit of financial privilege. So these are things that I carry, right? Mm-hmm. So for folks who are going to show up for other people, it's really important to think about what's going to get triggered and activated, but also what pieces of privilege do you have? And how are people going to look at you differently? Um, and what have you not kind of come to terms with? And I think for me, it was really, really eye-opening because I couldn't, you know, we learned about this a lot in social work school of like, what is the use of self and how do you bring yourself in? That was exactly what I was about to ask you. <laughs> Great mind. Like, how did you decide to show up in that space and prioritize supporting these parents when it was obviously so personal for you? I And, and so I think it's, it'll look different when you're running um, – you know, a, a new parent support group versus when you're doing therapy. And also, I mean, I think the most important thing is to do it intentionally. And my thought to anybody who is providing support for anybody is to just ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Mm. To be intentional about about what you share, because sometimes we're like, oh my God, and me too, and this thing, and, the, blah, 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 and you're like, whoa, I'm reacting from the activated place. And if you are activated, it's really important to know that and be like, whoa, all my shit is bubbling up Mm. and to notice it and to be aware of it. And this is why like a good mindfulness practice is, you know, every support person's best friend Mm. be aware and be like, oh, the thing is happening so that you're, if you start opening your mouth and like, and I was really traumatized in my thing and like you have this room full of parents who are looking at you (laughs) with their eyes open and you're like, oh, whoops. Clearly, I Did needed I say too much. <laughs> there, I had just something needed to be exorcised, but like, oh, I'm here to support you, and now everybody's dysregulated. Shit, who's holding? Who's holding the bag? Um, you ideally, sure, that's going to happen sometimes, but it's just this is why I'm like, you need to have good supervision. You need to have clinical training. Please check yourself before you show up for other people. Yeah. I think that's true in, in all the work with new families coming together or even just having that milestone transition kind of moment. Um, one of the questions I had coming up for me was, you know, you mentioned how your own stuff, your own hornet's nest can become rattled in the process of supporting someone through whatever milestone experience they're going through. And I was wondering what are the strategies that you have in place to cope with the potential for that. I heard you say notice. That's definitely a good first step, right? And then what? (laughs) (laughs) Can you solve all of our problems, please, right now? Well, (laughs) are you sitting down? No. Um, One simple solution for (laughs) (laughs) $9.99. I often say to clients, and I will say to everybody here, my magic wand is broken. My crystal ball is also broken. When I get this shit fixed, I will make a million dollars and I will move to Hawaii. Um, seriously, there are, I have so many people like, just fix it. How do I fix it? I'm like, well, mm. it is the process. 
So when you notice something is happening, you're sort of aware that something's happening to you and you can sort of say, oh, okay, this activation is happening. My hornet's nest is getting kicked. Like this conversation is is jostling all the stuff that I'm carrying. Um, And then it becomes something that's happening to you and you get this tiny little piece of separation from it. Um, and if you can get a little piece of separation from it, it's much more easy to exercise a little bit of control and say, oh yeah, this thing is happening. Okay. I see you kicking at the hornet's nest. And right now I'm going to just take a breath and you're going to come sit next to me. Oh, miss activation reaction. Yes. You're here. I see you. You can be here and you're not going to drive right now because I need to, I need to be here for all these people. In the moment um, when I feel like I am activated and I'm like, like all something doesn't feel right, and I feel that tightness in my chest or my heart is beating, or um, my one of my old therapists called it therapist stink, like the specific way that you start to sweat, (laughs) Um, and you're like, oh, but it's shit is so real. Um, Is really to be able to notice that it's happening, notice that it's happening. This is a thing that's happening. I don't like it and I know it's going to pass. I'm feeling a certain way. To notice it's happening, to name it. Um, know that it's okay. Um, this, or, this whole like acceptance without judgment is huge. Yeah. I'm feeling all this grossness. I don't like what this woman is saying. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling that I think that she's maybe a little privileged and myopic. And I feel the sweat kind of pooling in ways that I don't like it this is all happening to me. It's distressing and it feels shitty and gross. And I know it's going to pass. I'm not going to feel this way forever. Mm. Take your breaths. Notice that you're sitting on the floor. Notice what it feels like to push your feet into the ground. Put your shoulders back. See if you can touch your shoulder blades together. Do a belly breath and try to connect into your body in a way that feels okay. Um, I often tell people, do not block out what's happening because if you block it and try to shove it down, whenever you bury anything, you're going to bury it alive and that ain't good. So it's more sustainable, I would say, to sort of notice that it's happening and let it happen. And, you know, I always, I'm like, you can sit next to me. Like you can have the anxiety sit next to you. You can have the reactions, notice that they're happening, notice that they're going to pass. Whatever intensity you feel, it's not a permanent thing. It's going to come. It's going to go. You're standing on the beach. The waves are going to wash over you. You know, you're going to feel them come over you and they're going to recede. Right? Right. I'm imagining those little characters in the Pixar movie Inside Out. Like, I notice. I notice my anger coming into the control room. I notice my fear and I'm not going to let it drive. And it will pass. Right. That is That movie was uh, created based on... I believe it was the internal family systems model of the different parts of ourselves. And there's a whole, there's a whole lovely rabbit hole that we can fall into about that. But it's the noticing what's showing up like, oh, this thing is showing up for me right now. Okay, I see you. You can sit here, you can be here. Because if Mm -hmm. I shove you into the closet, you're going to get mad and the closet door is going to fall open and all of this stuff is going to fall out. So Mm -hmm. you can be here. I just need you to sit quietly. Mm hmm. Sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes I definitely open my mouth and like verbal diarrhea has come out. I can definitely relate to that. I've 100% done the same thing before. What about any moments when what's coming up for you isn't necessarily coming from your own activated place? Um, But in a room where you're supporting multiple people at once, 
what if their needs for support are conflicting? And what if you happen to align more with one set of those needs? Does that make sense? It does. And thankfully, I don't think there was ever a disagreement about like Trump or politics. Like we never got Mm. into that, thankfully. Um, What I will say though, is that like, I think that there were people who were in that room who were kind of like, oh, my baby isn't napping. Can we please talk about that? Um, And Mm. there were people who were like, all I can think about is my own safety and my vulnerability. Um, And so I, I was kind of like, it was hard because I was like, can we please talk about the real things? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. Your baby's not napping. I'm fine. And then I also had to be like, yes, this is both ands. Like (laughs) her baby's not napping. Like that's a real legit thing. Like she's tired. Mm -hmm. She's exhausted. She's fried. She came to this group to get support around this. And if she wants to talk about this, that's okay. And I had to sort of figure out how to hold space for everybody. And it was hard because I wanted to talk about politics. I wanted to talk about what it felt like to be brown in a predominantly white space and mm-hmm. you know, want to take care of people who were vulnerable, who felt scared, who had marginalized identities, who felt like they had something to really lose. And I had much less sympathy for, you know, cis, straight, white women who had financial means. And I definitely felt myself reacting to like fancy strollers and like Mm. questions that felt a little bit more myopic or just not inclusive of the reality of politics. Like I found myself being like, how can you be thinking about this at a time like this? Mm-hmm. But what you know is what you know and what your concerns are, they are what they are. and. Mm. it's all valid and there has to be space for all of it. And it was challenging. I I had, this was a time where I was like, okay, I'm having a reaction to your stroller. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yep. I Mm. see that. And also you came here with needs that are valid because they're your needs. And I need to be able to show up for that. Mm. You know what that reminds me of is just anytime I've thought, I know what the problem is. I know what you need right now. And I think the most common time I feel that way is after I've provided birth support to someone, if we're talking about birth support, and I see them for the first time postpartum after a birth that I viewed as traumatic for the parent, Mm -hmm. where I think what they went through was difficult. Maybe the doctor treated them some way that I thought was completely inappropriate or disrespectful, but they just want to talk about how wonderful the birth was, or they don't want to talk about the birth at all. That's very common too where I'm coming in with my pages of notes and pictures and I'm looking forward to hearing about what they thought of the birth and they've just completely moved on to, I pumped two ounces of milk. It's the most I've ever pumped and it spilled. And I feel like my life is falling apart because of that. You know, yeah. it's just what they need is what they need and we can't control that and we shouldn't. Right. And I think, you know, over the sort of the longer arc of working with people, you see that it'll come out when it's ready to come out. And one of the most powerful things you can do is to continue to be there and to show up and hold space for people in whatever way that they need. Um, Mm -hmm. And trust that they'll talk about it when they want to talk about it, or, you know, cracking the door just a tiny little bit and being like, you know, if you ever want to talk about this, we can talk about it. And if you don't, that's okay too. But Mm -hmm. I'm here for all of it. And just sort of like laying out a menu of options. It doesn't have to be now, doesn't have to be later, whenever, but just know that this is a thing that we can talk about if you want to. Mm. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking about this group and wondering how, you know, what was your journey as this was happening? 
And what did you get out of it that you weren't expecting? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I got out of it that my identity matters and that my identity is going to show up and that I can't ignore it. I can't ignore my own stuff. I can't, because it's going to show up, right? I can't just be a support group facilitator. I am a brown woman who experienced racial trauma throughout my early years and, you know, acted from a place of that trauma for so many years. And, you know, the lights came on um, in 2016. And there are many people who might look at me and be like, hello, your ass is really naive. Where were you all those years? How could you be in so much denial? And I mean, I think I'd, I'd, I'd had some sort of like glimmerings of like, yes, racism is, is like a major problem. And also I, I know how to manage it and I can, I can keep myself safe and I know how to navigate this. I can be in white spaces and it's fine. I know how to do this and it's okay. And then it started to feel like I, it's okay if it's not okay uh, for me. And I can choose to say, I, I mostly want to work with folks of color. Um, I need to sort of step away from being in predominantly white spaces. And that's all right. I can make that choice. And I actually, around that time, I ran a couple groups for parents of color. And also, I think parents who were in families with kids of color um, to just hold a space for people who were feeling a whole bunch of ways in response to Trump. Um, and I had a couple people who were kind of like, oh, you're really going to do that? Is that weird? Like, do you feel like that's kind of like not inclusive? And I thought about that for a second and I was like, yeah, maybe it is. And that's just going to be okay. Yeah. And I had never said that before. I had never sort of said that and stood by it. And I was surprised at myself. Mm. And I had had like a run-in with racism in Jamaica Plain several years before that. And I was talking to um, a wonderful woman who is my husband's cousin's wife. And she is a black woman. And I remember we were talking at Thanksgiving and I was this person who, you know, moderated a, a community-based listserv and dealt with a whole bunch of like a, the trash fire of racism. And I was kind of like, I really tried to be this helpful person and show up for people and be nice and offer advice and offer support. And, you know, I got thrown out like garbage. And she said to me, she was like, you know, you, she's very smart. And she was like, you really pride yourself on someone who is kind and supportive and people look to for help. And also, if you're going to talk about things like race and class, you're going to make people mad. And you might not be able to have it both ways. And at mm. some point, you may have to choose. And I was like, really? And mm. it stuck with me. And that was, you know, a couple of years before that. And in 2016, I was kind of like, I, I'm not just a support group facilitator. I am a brown woman. Uh, this election affects me differently. And I can't just act like it doesn't. Yeah it's all going to show up. It's going to show up for me. And I think that that's, I, and especially, oh my God, when you, if you go to social work school, woo, everyone, you get to social work school and everyone's like, if you don't have a therapist, get a therapist. And I'm like, I've been in therapy before. I'm good. No, no. <laughs> you're going to have to get a therapist. It's good. Like it's sometimes your stuff gets kicked up and it's a, it's a good exorcism, but you will mm -hmm. want someone to like sit with you through it. And mm -hmm. you know, when you're holding space for anybody supporting anybody, your own stuff is going to come up. And sometimes not when you expect it, it can be intrusive, it can be disruptive. And it felt a little intrusive and disruptive. Like I definitely felt those body sensations of when someone would be like my baby in this bottle. And I'd be like, 
there's a fucking sexual predator who is running on a platform of hate and making America fucking great again. And we all know what that means. And you're talking about bottles. What are we doing here? And then I was like, oh, oh, oh. I, I love the visual of, of a, a parent group where everyone's talking about these things. And then, and then the facilitator's like, this means nothing. The world is falling apart. And like it, the bottles are important. Like I can't, and yeah. you, like if you have not managed your own stuff, it's going to get in the way. And then you're not going to be able to answer the question or hold the space for the woman who has the question about bottles. Of course, she's questioning about bottles. Fine. That's okay. Mm-hmm. It has to be okay. Yeah. That was the next question I was going to ask, which is if you can remember any specific moments that really stood out to you in that space within yourself or between group members, or I know you already mentioned a few times when you felt activated from bottles or the fancy stroller. I relate to that one a lot. (laughs) Or the fourth expensive baby wrap the parent ordered at 3am because they had spent the night using the other three baby wraps they had, but the baby doesn't like them. So the parents have the ability to throw money at the problem. That usually activates me too. Even though it makes sense. Even though it makes sense. Listen, you know, my son is 13 years old. And like when my nipples were shredded and nobody was sleeping and I was sitting on a donut, if somebody had told me that I needed a purple Corvette and my son would sleep and my body would not feel pain, I would have fucking bought three. Like, it's fine. I would have been like, I don't know. Take my ovaries. I don't want to do this anymore. Just get get me sleep. Make my nipples stop bleeding. That's um, so true. That's so true. But I, I, the thing that really, the instance that really stands out in my mind when was when um, one woman who was a non-gestational parent for her daughter was talking about needing to adopt her. And she was one of the people who was like, I just want to talk about this and I just need everybody to listen. And she was very tearful. And, you know, she was saying, I don't know what's going to happen to my family. I don't know what this will mean. And, um, we were going to do this, but I, I have to do it sooner now. I'm, I'm going to go and adopt my daughter. And her saying, I need to go and adopt my daughter was, all of us were just silent and we listened. Mm. And I'm a straight identified woman. I'm married to a man. And, you know, I was feeling vulnerable in my own ways as a person of color. And to hear this woman share her fears and her vulnerability, I felt was so powerful. And I also felt honored that she trusted me and she trusted the group with that. Mm. They sound amazing. <laughs> They're wonderful. And these are all the women who I reached out to to get permission. I was like, can I talk about this cohort? And they were like, hey, Aww. yes, you can. Send us the link to the podcast. Oh, how wonderful. Have you been able to keep in touch with these families? I have for the most part. Um, social media is garbage. And um, also it's how we stay in contact with people. Mm-hmm. And it's lovely to see their babies grow. Um, I saw one woman in the package store the other day. I'm from Connecticut. We call them package stores in the liquor store. And it was one of those things where <laughs> it was maybe it was earlier in the summer, earlier in the fall. Um, I went, I was going to see a friend for a socially distant, you know, fire pit situation in someone's yard. And I was like, I'll go grab a bottle of wine. And then the next thing I knew, I, I didn't have a basket, but I somehow was holding like six bottles of wine. And like one was, 
<laughs> one was like tucked underneath my chin, like between my chin and my shoulder. <laughs> She's like, oh, um, Jimmy, is that you? And I was like, oh, hi. <laughs> She's like, are you okay? And I was like, I'm fine. I just have this wine body Jenga. Yeah. Um, but so I still see people around and, you know, their kids are older and they're, you know, in preschool. It's crazy. Yeah. How do you, how do you close a space that means so much to parents for so long? You said that you normally led these parenting groups for six months at a time. Yeah, it was a drop-in group. So sometimes, you know, people will come and go. And, mm. and I also ran groups that were, that were six week sessions that people would, um, you know, people will come for the entire six weeks, you would sign up and you would come. Um, and those were sort of easier to close out. And every once in a while, people would bring food. Somebody brought mimosas once to the, the last meeting of those groups. Aww. But the drop-ins were a little bit different. People would kind of come and go. So there wasn't so much sort of ceremony around it. Although sometimes people who would come for a long time would be like, this is my last one. I'm really going to miss you guys. Thank you so much. And um, I, I'm I'm trying to rack my brain on how all of this ended. And I think it ended in the way that most of these cohorts end is that people transition mm-hmm. gradually return to work outside the home or their babies age out or sometimes people move. Um, so I don't think there was a sort of final closure, goodbye situation. But mm-hmm. I, I do know that I stopped running these groups in early 2017. So this is one of the last big cohorts that I can remember. Um, it might have been really the last cohort, and it was it was so salient for me um, mm-hmm. to be in that space with this group of women. And you know, when I reached out to them to get their permission to share these stories, I introduced it with like, "This was a really powerful time to me, and I remember all of you as part of it." And they were like, "Yes, we feel the same way." Um, mm-hmm. That was wonderful. Yeah, that's just so beautiful. Well. To close, I know you've already shared so many helpful words of wisdom with us, but is there anything else you'd like to share about providing postpartum support or just any kind of support, really? Um, so again, like your own stuff is going to come up sometimes when you don't even expect it. We become parents in a context and all of the trauma and all the stuff that we carry is going to be activated in the context of becoming parents. And also as we, as perinatal support folks hold space for parents. So I think that we have to ask ourselves, what do we need? What do we need if we're going to be able to hold space for other people? And at that time in 2016, I needed to feel safe. I needed to feel like I had allies because I felt very vulnerable. Um, And these parents needed me to hold space for them And they needed to hold it in a way so that they could talk about what they needed to talk about. They needed to be able to talk about their fears. And, you know, I needed to reflect on my own stuff as a brown woman and how it was going to be surfacing for me and how I could really be there to support new parents. So that's really what I leave folks with. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people who are like, oh my God, it's fine. Like all my stuff is fine. Like that's fine. That's fine. That's great. And also just reflect on how it might get activated so that you know how to take care of yourself in those moments so that you can be there for the people that you're trying to support. Because if you can't manage all the stuff that's coming up for you, it's going to be harder for you to co-regulate. And just in the same way we have to co-regulate for our kids, right? Um, Mm Because parenting is really freaking triggering. And if your kids are acting out in a certain way, you're like, most of the times we're reacting to our kids in a from a place of our own unresolved stuff, right? And mm-hmm. I'm not just I'm not saying that being a perinatal support person is like parenting, 
But in that same way, if our own stuff gets triggered and activated and kicked, we have to figure out how to manage all of that so that we're not reacting from that place when we're working with families. Mm. I really Mm -hmm. appreciate speaking to that because I think that one of the things that was coming up for me as you were sharing was just the thought of how it's easy to imagine that because, you know, you're dealing with parents and babies and everything about that is so, you know, loving and oxytocin inducing, that doesn't mean one, like you said, that the context of your existence is not going to play a part, but it also doesn't mean that there isn't real labor involved in holding space and in having all of those all of those lived experiences or facets of your lived experience colliding in particular ways, right? I mean, there's a reason why that particular time was when all of these things were activated. There's, you know, it's kind of like something, I think like you were bringing together too, Kelia, just that it's something that is always there for a lot of parents, um, but maybe not talked about as explicitly. And then for a lot of other parents, there was maybe a much stronger illusion that those things are removed, but, but they're not, (laughs) they have like real life impact on, on all of us. Um, And, you know, like you were saying, being a Brown person holding space for people who are not Brown and holding the space for the suffering that they're experiencing and also, you know, living in the context of the the suffering that you're experiencing or that people who look like you are experiencing, it's not, I, I don't think it's a bad thing that those things were activated and brought together. And I don't think it's a bad thing when a caregiver is experiencing that activation. I think the real issue comes or the choice comes with, you know, what are you going to do about it? Because yep. if you don't do about it, if you don't do anything, you could you know, really harm yourself and others. But if you do do something about it, like, wow, what a gift you, you know, you may find. Yes. I, I could not agree with all of that more. And I appreciate how beautifully you synthesized all of that. And the word, the, the, um, the image of all these things colliding, um, is a particularly powerful one. And and that is often how it feels. It feels like you're in some sort of emotional pinball because everything is sort of bouncing off each other and colliding. Right. And I think that time was, it was a formative period for me because I was kind of like, all of these things have to be integrated. And it is, the integration is critical to how I work. Like, I don't think that we can talk about birth without talking about mental health. And we can't talk about mental health without talking about trauma and racism. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> all of these things, they all, they all come together. And, and mm-hmm. those, the people who know me know that I often beat this integration drum of like, why are we talking about birth in a silo <laughs> because mm-hmm. you you can't I, and I think this is why like it, all of these things really have to be looked at together because they interact and they collide and you can't really pull them apart from each other because they are so intertwined and so this process of becoming a parent it really it it is the culmination of all these integrations right it might um, elicit memories of trauma it might um, activate vulnerabilities. It is, the, it is the thing where you realize how all of these things are connected. For example, when we think I do a lot of work with perinatal mental health, and it's particularly in this time with COVID and also with 
the surfacing of centuries of racial trauma over the past six months or so with the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, you have BIPOC women, particularly Black women, who are really, really anxious and are showing signs of PTSD. And all of that makes sense, right? You can't just say like, oh, she has postpartum mm-hmm. depression. She has postpartum anxiety. I'm like, well, really? Okay, yes. But it's not just the postpartum anxiety that we see in the DSM. It's all of these things put together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How fitting that you're the first postpartum support story that we're featuring, you know? Oh. That it's not just your body. It's not just the birth. It's not just the bottles. No, and I'm, it's everything. No, and I'm always, the birth people hate me when I say this, but I'm like, labor and delivery is important. Birth is important. It's all important. Also, it is finite. It's true. Agreed. It is. <laughs> Agreed. I agree 100% with that. I think it's part of the dysfunction of the system. It's, I don't think it's like a mistake or accident or whatever, but the focus on the birth when the birth is, I'm always telling my clients, the birth is just the door you walk through. Mm. (laughs) And, and the, you know, it's finite, like you said, but your parenting experience, that's, that goes on for way longer. And being with that person for all that time and with the person that you are, once you've walked through that door, that's a very, very different thing that, you know, that requires, uh, what does it require? Durability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It requires um, a willingness to deal with your own shit and other people's mm-hmm. shit. Yep. Community support, like what Divya is describing. Yeah. Community support and places where you can process all of this. Mm-hmm. Yes. Places where people can just hold you. Yep. Because it's the stuff is going to come up in ways that you hadn't thought about. Like maybe you have issues with your mom or whatever, and you've been able to manage it. And all of a sudden, you're holding your own baby, and you're like, "Oh my god, yeah, <laughs> whoa!" All of the zombie hands of my buried feelings. <laughs> all of the zombie hands of my buried feelings. I love no. that. I mean, because, you know, we are really, really good at burying feelings. And when you bury your feelings, you bury them alive. I'm going to remember that one. Listen, I had this amazing trauma professor in social work school, and she said this repeatedly. And I say that all day long. And clients are like, damn. I'm like, listen, we cope in the ways we cope because it's what we know and it's what works. And we do Mm -hmm. it because it works. And then all of a sudden, maybe it doesn't work anymore. And we're like, oh, oh, got to learn new coping mm. skills. And inevitably, this is when you have the baby, right? Because <laughs> yep. you're used to sleeping, yeah. <laughs> right? And maybe moving your body and maybe eating food with two hands yeah, mm-hmm. and not peeing your pants. Yes. My favorite joke for two years postpartum with every child so far is just thinking of people who are having maybe challenges or friction in their relationship. And one of them says, let's have a baby. That'll fix it. Oh. <laughs> no. Then oh. everything's going to be on volume 12. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I just want to be like, oh, baby, uh-uh. Wrong way. <laughs> no, please go to therapy. <laughs> go in the other direction. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of therapy and mental health, (laughs) Divya, did you have any other resources that you wanted to recommend either to parents or to support people? A lot of the work that I do is around perinatal mental health. And so the organization that I always want to tell people about is PSI, Postpartum Support International. Mm -hmm. Um, Postpartum.net, I believe, is is the website. 
Um, I will also do a shameless plug for the Perinatal Mental Health Alliance for People of Color, which is the program within PSI, which is an organization that I helped co-found in uh, early 2017, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we do is we are we are in the process of building capacity among perinatal mental health professionals to better meet the needs of individuals, families, and communities of color. So Mm. that folks who are BIPOC, who are looking for a BIPOC perinatal therapist, somebody with perinatal mental health training who identifies as BIPOC, we're hoping to build that professional field by offering scholarships to PSIs, perinatal mental health trainings, um, so that there's just more support people out there. We're really trying to diversify and build the field of perinatal Mm. mental health folks. That is so cool. And how can folks find that? It is on the internet. Uh, The website is (laughs) the internet. Everybody started it. PMHAPOC.org. And in the spirit of giving at this time of year, most of the money that we raise goes to providing scholarships for BIPOC folks who are looking for specialized training in perinatal mental health. So that's where um, if folks chose to donate to the Perinatal Mental Health Alliance for People of Color, that's where most of our money goes to. Beautiful. And how can folks connect with you personally? I have like a <laughs> like the personal Insta account with like my babies and like the beach and like random... <laughs> baking projects. Um, and my professional Insta handle is both brown and underscore. Mm. Um, cause we are both brown and many things. Mm, yes. So true. Thank you. If anything from today's episode resonated with you, leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app and follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Duo stories. If you're a doula and you have a story to share, email us at doulastories at gmail.com. This episode was produced by me, Kelia Alder, and our music is by Rick Bassett. Special thanks to Divya Kumar for sharing her story with us and to the families Divya supported for allowing her to share her story. Thanks also to Cameron Sharp and to my co-host, who's as wise as a 180-year-old, Ajira Darch. <laughs>